Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a special show for you today because we have a special artist, the one and only Miles Regis. Stay tuned for the conversation because it is a good one, rich and deep and compelling. So, so stay tuned. It's coming up. Before we get into it, I want to thank you for tuning in. We do this for you. It's all about you. If you weren't here, well, it'd just be sad. So I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Also want to, of course, as always, encourage you to go to notrealart.com to check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you there. If you're an artist, we have our 2024 artist grant that's open now for the chance to win $2,000 and thousands more in marketing and PR support. It's open now and you can submit. You can't win if you don't submit. So please today, don't hesitate, go and do it. It's open until January 1st, but why wait? Do it today. Also at notrealart.com, you're going to find some amazing content uh, in terms of discovering artists that maybe you've never known of before. And so notrealart.com is a great place to discover new artists and their amazing work. I also want to encourage you to check out our new series, Remote, by the one and only Badir McCleary, who's taking us on a journey of public art, not just across the United States, but around the world. And he's exploring what public art means in their spaces. So be sure to check out the incredible series remote by the one and only Badir McCleary at notrealart.com. Okay, let's get into this conversation with Miles Regis. I tell you what, I was so charmed and delighted to sit down with Miles. He was recently on a panel of ours at our Smart Talk series at the Helms Bakery District in Culver City, California. Uh, of course, Miles is a LA-based artist. It's been an honor to get to know him. And, and of course, our conversation today was I think my first time to really sit down one-on-one with Miles and better understand his journey and his mind. And it was just wonderful to talk about some rich topics and perhaps even, you know, for some difficult topics. And it was great to be able to have a real human conversation with Miles in the life and studio of Miles, who was born in Trinidad. Every action is an opportunity for creative self-expression, prolific in both fine art and fashion design Regis freely swaps the materials and languages of each to enrich the other. His large-scale mixed-media paintings on canvas are lined in incorporate dimensional collage, elements of denim, buttons, leather, and printed matter and sequins and patches of eclectically sourced found textiles along with his dexterous, gestural, richly hued abstract and figurative painting techniques. Aggressively hopeful and humanistic, Regis embraces a storytelling stance and his stylized renderings of fundamental scenes of love, loss, freedom, survival, activism, and living history. Tapping into the emotional experience of exotic cultures around the world and presenting them in ways that are relevant to today's modern societies, 
Regis favors the simplicity of black and white structure, starkly juxtaposed with the complex dimensions of color. Reoccurring motifs include his use of eyes, encouraging the viewer to look deeper. His paintings are often layered with vibrant hues, powerful imagery, text, abstract brushstrokes, and purposeful objects. The same eye-catching iconography and palette, which also appear in his original wearable art series. Hand-painted by the artist, each fabric highlights a delicately detailed working of both surface and narrative in the same process that expresses the personal and collective mythologies enshrined in his artworks. Regis's work is in the permanent collection of the Intel Corporation, the California African American Museum. He's shown at Art Basel Miami. He's been at the Coachella Music and Art Festival. He's been on CNN. It just goes on and on because Miles is just that talented, just that good and just that smart. And by the way, a beautiful human being. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation I had with the one and only Miles Regis. Miles Regis, welcome to Not Real Art. Hey, Scott. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Pleasure to be here. Oh, well, you're classing up the joint, my friend. I'm so grateful. (laughs) Things just got a lot better here. So You're too kind. Too kind. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. You're very humble. I love it. So it looks like you might be in your studio. Where, Where am I finding you right now? I am at the studio. This is where all the magic happens. Los Angeles. I'm close to downtown. And this is sort of like, you know, my main creative spot. I like to travel and paint as well. But being here in Los Angeles at home is sort of the main place where it all happens. Sure. Yeah. It's a bit of a safe house, a safe place, right? It definitely is. It definitely is. You know, well, this is where I live and my work is sort of a, a reflection of what's happening in my life. So, you know, married, two kids and Life is really interesting as a dad of, you know, 20 year old and a 17 year old. And so I I just am really documenting the day to day happenings of my reality and sort of making sense of it on canvas. And hopefully it resonates and touches whoever is viewing it in a positive manner, you know. Yeah, well, there's a lot there to unpack because I, too, am married with two kids. Only my kids are 10 and 6. And you, my friend. You got the fun years ahead of you. <laughs> exactly. Every age is a blessing and, and it's exciting in its own way. Well, all of my advice to you is enjoy it because you aren't, they don't challenge you as much at that age. You know, once they hit teenagers, it's where you start to get the pushback, the opinions, and the, no, you don't know anything. I've, been here many more years than you so i know better than you (laughs) oh yes the rebellious teenage years well the one bit of advice i got and i know you'll validate this too back it up it's it's just they say you know appreciate the minutes and the days because while the days might be long the years are fast they go really quick very very true and it's it's such a cliche but it's like you know time really does fly i still see them as like little toddlers and look at them like, wait, how did you, how did you become grown? <laughs> what happened? By the way, they when did time go? Yeah. So how has your practice helped you be a better parent? I think it's centered me. It's given me calm. I feel like it's so essential to come from a place of 
peace and truth with anybody in general, but especially with your kids. So I feel like it has allowed me to sort of step back and contemplate and then sort of act with a sense of the word that keeps popping into my head and I can't put it into a sentence form is it has grounded me. And I think that grounding is essential when you're raising a family. It's important that you are objective. And as you're guiding, it's important to sort of weigh all sides of the argument, you know, whatever comes at you. So yeah, the art has allowed me to be a little bit more introspective, a little bit more rational, centered. And I guess the real question would be for my children. Like, <laughs> like they would be the ones. So how is your dad as an artist? affected his parenting like they're really the ones to give that answer but i feel like you know from my perspective it, it has allowed me a calm that ordinarily i don't think i would have had because i worked in the corporate world i did a nine-to-five when they were really little i've been a full-time artist now for 15 years and i feel like when i was sort of suiting up and going to work every day i don't really have the time to focus on them in the way that I thought I should. So, you know, the art career has really been a blessing because I've been able to give them really focused attention, take them to school, pick them up every day. Before that, it was the nanny taking them to school. And so I've been able to be a very present father. Wow. So there was a lot there I want to unpack a little bit because, A, I didn't know you suited up for a corporate gig ever one day in your life. What were you doing back then? I did. Let's start from my Okay. Jumping off the plane here in Los Angeles, I went to USC. Uh I studied creative writing. And while at USC, I interned at Sony Music. So I sort of started my career in the music business. Right after I graduated, after college, I worked in entertainment predominantly. I went from Sony Music over to the movie side of things and worked for Orion. Orion was acquired by MGM. So I was there for maybe like four years. And then I started, at that point, I'd been laid off maybe like five times. Oh, wow. At Orion, I was like laid off and rehired twice. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I need to sort of start my own enterprise, like build my own empire. And so I really, it was a strategic move on my part when I left MGM. I could have gone to other studios, but I said, you know what? Let me sort of learn as much as I can learn. And then sort of start my own business. So I worked for a lot of vendors of MGM. I did sales and marketing for a couple companies. And then I went over to doing headhunting. So I was at Robert Half for a couple of years. And then I headed up a company called Filter, Filter Talent. And I ran the Los Angeles operation. So basically a team of like four headhunters and we sort of found opportunities for creative talent, web designers, graphic designers, copywriters, you know. So we recruited and then placed them at the studios. So I did that right up until I was 40. Yeah. In my 40th year of being on this earth, I jumped ship and became a full-time artist. Wonderful. No regrets. No regrets. One again. I love that. So that must have been scary, though. It was very scary because, you know, at that point, I had all the responsibilities of mature adult parenting and mortgage and car notes and private school fees and 
my dear wife said, you know what, we only live once, you were meant to paint, you were put on this earth to create, and, you know, you've been so supportive of other people's dreams as a headhunter, you sort of make everyone else's dream come true. Why not sort of put the energy and what you've learned over the years into building your own career and your own empire? Yeah. it's not an empire just yet but it's getting there one day at a time yeah exactly and i'm I'm really proud of what i've accomplished over the years you know it's been 15 years a lot of ups and downs but i've learned so much and every day is a learning experience you know there's so much that comes with running your own business and sort of keeping it fresh every day and you know looking ahead you know planning stuff for like two years out and i feel like when I was a part of this sort of corporate structure, you, I, you know, it was like, okay, so what are we doing for the next quarter? What, what are the numbers projected for the next year? But this is a different animal when it's your entity and you sort of have to keep this ship running yes. for an eternity. <laughs> you know, so it's like <laughs> I'm planning shows for like 2025 and beyond. And it's like, okay, so. There's hope ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's longevity here. So yes, yeah. yes. It sounds like you were painting while you were working in the corporate environment as well. So, what was your practice like during those years? I definitely was. It was like a, a side hustle, side career, and I was really fortunate because a lot of my early collectors were actors and actresses, celebrities, sort of household names at the time. And I was able to sort of use that to get the attention of some pretty serious art people. So I was fortunate to sort of land in group museum shows and fancy galleries. It was then a little bit easier for me to jump ship and become a full-time artist. And I was actually encouraged by a few of my collectors to do it. They were like, why are you... You have this amazing talent. Why are you suiting up and going into an office and making money for other people? Don't you believe in yourself? Like, you can do this. And of course, my pushback always was look at my responsibilities. I, you know, I, I can't. I can't chance. I can't. They're like, you know what? When I was a waiter waiting tables <laughs> and going to auditions, I never thought that I would stop waiting tables. But here I am on the number one TV show. I saw that it was possible with the people I surrounded myself with. And that encouragement sort of helped me make the leap, really. Yeah, well, with a major in creative writing at USC, obviously you were embracing your artistry in the written word growing up. I mean, were you painting as a kid as well? Or I mean, how were you expressing yourself artistically as a kid? I was, you know what? And, and I had this conversation yesterday with someone i was rewriting my bio we were talking about leaving the past behind and we're trained to sort of have these blinders on and we don't really sort of acknowledge a lot that has happened in our lives in the past and it was a really deep conversation about ancestors and where you're from and i'm from trinidad so i was raised grew up in trinidad and the trinidad culture is such a part of me and still is Anyway, the conversation was more about the fact that everything that I did as a child, I'm still doing at 55 years old. 
which is, you know, I did a lot of poetry. I was always writing. I was always drawing and painting. And on the clothing side, you know, when I was a teenager and you're going to parties and your friends have all these fancy outfits and designer name stuff, I the way I sort of individualized my style, so to speak, was by painting my clothing. And that sort of speaks to me now having a, a clothing line. I was a, well, I still am a singer-songwriter, but back in Trinidad, I'm, I'm known as a singer because I had a career as a performer. So I've been singing since I was five, on stage since I was five. And right now, I'm not on stage performing necessarily, but I'm still writing and recording music in support of sort of my tech-driven art installations. So like VR and AR, you know, if you experience any of those, it's my music that's the soundtrack. So it's really interesting that, you know, you kind of go through life and you take the corporate gigs and you, but still today at 55 it's like i'm doing exactly what i was doing <laughs> as a child but it's what i loved doing as a child so i'm just as happy doing it today so there's something to be said for sort of leaning into your purpose doing what you love honoring the natural gifts that you were given and i feel like that's the secret you're happy if you're doing what you love to do if you're doing what you were put here to do everything else sort of falls into place. And I'm not just saying that, you know, you just sit and paint all day. There's obviously a lot more that goes with it. And I was really fortunate to have the corporate experience and to have run other people's businesses. And, you know, that too sort of plays into what I'm about today. Now I'm able to sort of take those skills and apply it to my own business. Well, so we're all products of our environment. And so I, I want to go back a little bit to Trinidad and to your home life, because obviously mom and dad did a pretty damn good job one way or another. My parents were very conservative and sort of thought that art wasn't a real job. And so what was your tradition in your family? Did they think of art as being a serious endeavor or was it more frivolous? Yeah, when I decided to become a full-time artist at 40, I was really shocked to hear my dad in particular, who's very, very conservative man, say to me, ah, son, that's amazing. I support you all the way. And it almost was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> I could have been doing this since I was 20. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, everything happens the way it's meant to. But yes. I was just, I was so stunned to hear him voice those words. And it wasn't like he was just being a supportive dad. Like, he believed that I could do it. And it was like, well, I, how, how come I? Such a disconnect in my mind. But really super supportive parents. I think every parent kind of wants the best for their child, sort of want them to have something to fall back on. And for my parents, it was like, you must do college. And you know, now I'm kind of going through that with my children. It's like, well, college isn't for everyone. But in the back of my mind, it's like, what? I can't say that to my children. They have to go to college. You know, so it's like... <laughs> It's really interesting, but to give you a little bit of background, I don't know, Trinidad is a very different Caribbean island. It's a very prosperous, very 
thriving industrial i always call it sort of like the new york of the caribbean you know oh wow mm-hmm. and a lot of people they hear trinidad and they think caribbean and beaches and yes we do have that but there's so much more to trinidad and trinidad life and my experience growing up was a very sort of middle class i saw my parents both go to work every day. My dad wore a suit every day. My dad's a retired judge, bless his heart, he's 89. And my mom is a retired school principal. And she taught elementary school. She actually taught the elementary school that I went to. That's a whole other therapy session. But, you know, so I saw them sort of with their careers and their professions and they excelled. And that sort of work ethic I believe I still have with me, you know, like even with my art, like I get up every day and I try to create every day, whether it's painting or recording, I'm putting in the hours every single day. Yes. And I think that that discipline comes from what I saw as a child growing up. And it doesn't matter what you do. I feel like if you are to succeed at it, you have to put in the hours and the story. So that discipline, I feel like my parents knew that I had the discipline. Mm-hmm. So whatever venture I decided to pursue would yield some degree of success. Yes. The realities of being a full-time artist in Trinidad is very different. A Los Angeles-based full-time artist versus a Trinidad full-time artist is the cultural differences are vast. So I don't think they could have necessarily wrapped their minds around the possibilities here. Mm-hmm. But I did grow up having a lot of artists in my family who inspired me and who I looked up to, sort of household names. And, you know, Trinidad culture is just vibrant. And it's like the best art school you could possibly ever think of. You know, we have Trinidad Carnival, which is, you know, it's this annual burst of creativity. That's the only term I could use you know the the costuming is incredible the music that goes into it and the preparation is it's almost like a year-round thing so being a part of that culture and being exposed to that really was incredible and my dad was pretty involved with carnival from the music side of things the company that he worked for sort of sponsored one of the larger steel band sections so you know, I was really privy to sort of the inner workings of, you know, the steel band, sort of I mean, like the business side of it, the behind the scenes. And as a child, he would sort of take us to the rehearsals that lead up to Carnival. They would sort of rehearse every day. So let's say it's probably changed, but let's say three months before the actual date of Carnival, they would start practicing what they would be playing for Carnival. And as a child, I got to see that. So you kind of get, you understand process, you know, just up here on the stage, all polished and shiny. It started three months. Forgive me if it it may be six months, but you know, you start way before. And years before that. Right. Exactly. 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 So, you know, it kind of made me understand that in order to excel at anything that you do on the creative side, Again, you have to put in the work. You have to put in the hours. 
So I don't know if I answered your question, but I'm trying to paint the, a picture of sort of like the, the cultural landscape that I came from, which was ultra creative and this amazing hotbed of the creativity is just mind blowing. And then it's sort of almost bottled because, you know, it's an island of like yeah. 1 million people. So it's like this concentrated, just high energy, intense, beautiful creativity coupled with sort of the structure and discipline of my parents' sort of corporate grind. And you sort of marry the two. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, are we grateful for that. It's so fascinating to hear about people's journeys and there's so you know many layers to it. And your particular journey, of course, is special, you know, for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which, of course, you immigrated to America from your home country. So I want to chat about that a little bit because while I've never been a Trinidad, I mean, I have been to South America and I've been to the Caribbean and I've traveled a bit around the world. And there are those cultures that seem to have the arts are baked into the culture. So whether it's music or dance or fashion or color or food or, and it's just intrinsic to the culture, to the people, to the country. And I don't think America, you know, it's funny, a Latino friend of mine once said, you know, the problem with being white is that white people don't have any culture. <laughs> and I, and I laughed and I said, and I laughed, I said, well, wait a minute, we have shopping malls and we have, you know, but I took his point, you know, cause as a Hispanic, as a, a Latino, again, their culture is very colorful and there's food and it's, and it's, there's music and, and there's, it's family. And, and so, you know, what, when you immigrated to America, I mean, what was you, how did you feel about this new culture, this new place? Well, I don't believe that it was, a, it didn't feel like a new culture necessarily, because you have to understand that America exports so many different cultural yep. realities. So as a child growing up in Trinidad, you know, you're watching Let's just take entertainment, TV. 95% of the shows that I grew up watching were American made. And living in an island, you, you get a little bit of stuff from everywhere. So there's a bit of the British TV thing, Australian, but the majority was always American. So you're hearing an American accent practically 24-7. And subconsciously, that becomes a part of your culture. So yeah. The Trinidad experience is a very, or was for me, I'm not going to speak for every Trinidadian, was a very Americanized experience. And then you have travel. My parents are big on travel. So every summer we sort of vacationed outside of Trinidad. When you're from an island, you know, you tend to want yeah. to experience other other islands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, the funny thing is we did go to other islands, which I love, but it was, I hate to say this, but it felt like, well, why aren't we going to America? Why aren't we going to Europe? <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> and my focus or, or my, my brother and I were really into American culture. So, you know, we, if we were asked, so where, where do you want to go on a vacation? I had two uncles here in Los Angeles, uh, family in New York, family in Canada, family in London. And it was always like, LA. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go to LA or New York. 
or Miami, you know, it was all, it was all like the USA always won. Yeah. That was right. always top, top of our list. And music had a lot to do with that as well. You know, Trinidad radio isn't as political as radio is here. And I, I learned that when I worked at Sony, it was like, wow, why is there black radio and pop radio and country radio? And the promotion department is responsible for getting the record played. And, you know, it's, it's the structure in Trinidad was very different. If, an album came out and they liked the songs on the album, they would play the entire album. <laughs> sort of. But of course, the popular songs, the more popular songs on US, US radio sort of dominated the charts in the Caribbean as well. But, you know, again, you have like, you know, US music, you have Trinidad Soca and Jamaican reggae, and you have music from the London scene and Australian hits and it's all being played on the radio. So I'm losing, okay, where did this even start? But anyway, <laughs> I say all this to say that coming to, moving to Los Angeles, yes, it was a very different experience for me, but I was familiar with a lot of, and I connected with a lot of culture. Of course, when you're experiencing something that's exported it's a lot different being here and sort of experiencing it on the ground obviously was eye-opening but it felt familiar and it felt like I was finally able to be a part of what as a teenager I really wanted to be a part of so it was it was a dream come true for me how did we receive you yeah as an immigrant what was that experience like that first day, week, month, year, five years? It was very interesting. I had a very great support system in my uncle, my mother's brother, Louis, and his family. I also, it wasn't like I landed on the streets of Hollywood trying to find a job. You know, I, I fell into the culture of USC which in itself is, or was at the time, this is many, many years ago, it felt like various pockets of different cultures, all sort of like operating simultaneously. It was, it was interesting, but I felt like I needed to relate to all. So that was a great lesson in understanding how to fit in. And that's life. You know, when you get into a job situation, everybody is not, does not have your same background or mindset or perspective. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I found my tribe. I joined the Caribbean club really early. I was a part of the whole international student union. And I met, you know, made really great friends from Greece and Israel, like all over the world. But through the international student assembly situation, I joined the Caribbean club and became friends with a still in my life to this day. Jamaicans, Antiguans, and that sort of felt like, okay, you guys have been here for a bit and you guys have navigated this space successfully. So what are the cheats? Help me figure this out here. So I was able to be guided in a way that I probably would not have been able to if I didn't have that support system. I'm not one of those to just rely on one perspective or to, to stick with one group. People would always say this, like back in the day, particularly before we had kids, we would host, my wife and I would host parties and 
there would be people from all walks of life, every color under the sun. And friends would pull me aside and go, oh my God, I've never, never been in a situation where I've seen so much diversity. And I, I feel like that sort of speaks to our hearts and our, we're just like, you're a good person. And sometimes they're not good people, but hey, people make the world go around and you can learn so much from the differences, you know? So back to USC and there, and, you know, if I met someone in a class that I was taking and we bonded, then sometimes you take it outside of the classroom, you go for a drink, you invite them over for to hang out. Like it, it was, it sort of taught me that the world is a beautiful sort of varied place. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating conversation for me as being sort of a born and bred Midwestern, straight white male, whatever, because the promise, right, of America on some level is is that of a gumbo, right? Like it's supposed right. to be supposed to be this amazing mix of flavors and ingredients and it's supposed to be delicious and that's the promise right and you get glimpses of that there are moments like your party for example or you know other part you know or new orleans or just other places in this country where absolutely that ideal is being realized but then of course we know that there are many places in the country where that ideal is actually not at all realized and maybe actually demonized in some ways and I have so many dear friends who are immigrants. First, either they're either they're first generation immigrants or they've immigrated here. And so I have nothing but huge respect for anyone that comes to another country. I mean, I just put myself in your shoes. I mean, if I try to immigrate to Trinidad, my gosh, I mean, how challenging that would be, right? And so it is just such a, you know, and I think anytime I can take a moment to ask an immigrant about their experience in America and what that was like and what brought them here, what their experience has been like. I feel like that's so important because, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And with so much rhetoric, politicized, weaponized rhetoric around immigration in this country, you know, I feel like this, you know, we need to humanize these stories and bring these stories forward to humanize immigrants. Because by the way, let's not forget people, this whole country was built by immigrants. Yeah, this country built on immigrants. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. You know, they have been really difficult times, but for the most part, I consider myself really fortunate, really blessed to have been able to sort of navigate and sort of figure out what works and, you know, certain things don't. And you sort of just stay away from that, leave that behind. And I've sort of always lived a really sort of hopeful, positive existence with almost like you have blinders on. It's like, okay, well, Mm-hmm. That's fucked. Can I curse? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah. That yeah. and you just yeah. you know, you don't you don't let you don't let situations derail you. So I think there's something to be said for an immigrant sense of resilience. Dare I make that statement? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. I mean it's the resilience necessary, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, what's the alternative? Right. I feel like a lot of immigrants are here to build a better future for themselves and their loved ones. And, you know, so a a lot of immigrants, unfortunately, have to take a lot of of crap. But I think if you have sort of end game or a bigger picture in sight, then it allows you to just plow through and make stuff happen. 
Do you feel like, or did you feel like, or do you feel like at that time when you came to LA, do you feel like you had a good grasp and understanding on the complexities of African-American culture and the history and the struggle coming here? Or was that something that you sort of learned over the years of being here? Oh, that's such, such an excellent question. I thought I had it figured out. I thought I knew everything. I will never forget my cousin who was like 10 years older than I am. And he was New York based. So his existence and his realities were a lot different than a black male growing up in Los Angeles, per se. But I'll never forget him sort of pulling me aside, like maybe six months into me being here. And I figured, oh, I got this figured out. I'm the man now. And he was like, oh, I'll give you 10 years until you really kind of figure stuff out. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? 10 years? And then I'll never forget my best friend whose parents are Panamanian. And he would always say to me, because we would, you know, obviously we experience various levels of discrimination, racism, I don't know what you want to call it. And oh, but let's just say bias. Yeah. He would always say, you don't quite get it. And he's like, I'll tell you what my parents, and this is my Panamanian friend saying this, I'll tell you what my parents told me. And it was that, you know, they as immigrants didn't really understand the complexities of racism and the realities of this landscape until they had children. Mm. And I found that once my son was born and he's 20. So I felt like that was true. It's almost like, well, I can kind of, you know, you have your armor on and like, you can, you know, I can, I can take this crap, but don't you dare fuck with him. (laughs) And I'll never forget. It also is true of my father. I remember him visiting, you know, my dad's super respected, Life in Trinidad is very cushy. The red carpet is rolled out everywhere my parents go, when people know them. And I'll never forget, my parents came to visit many, many years ago, and my dad just sat on like shorts and, you know, just, he didn't look like a retired judge. And this speaks to the whole black men wearing hoodies thing. It's like, you know, sometimes it's not even about what you wear, but I'm going in a lot of directions. But anyway, he walked into the elevator with me and she stood next to this white woman and she clutched her purse. And I don't know if that had happened to me before, but in that moment, seeing somebody disrespect my father in that way, I was ready to just blow a fuse. So... Sometimes it's not about how it affects you directly. It's about seeing it affect your loved ones. Yes. I think that was the point that my friend was making, that his parents had made to him. But yeah, to answer your, your question, over the years, I have understood a little bit more and a little bit better. And I've been in, I mean, experience does that to you. I feel like I'm a lot more sensitive. I don't think I am quite at the place that a black man born and bred in the U.S. is at, but I feel like over the years, 
my perspective has definitely shifted and I'm a lot more sensitive and a lot closer to that reality. But my kids being, I mean, they're American and, you know, my son, my son is African-American. He's born here, you know, Trinidadian parents, but he's born here. And he would always say, but, you know, you got, because my wife also is from Trinidad and has an accent. So he says, you know, but you guys speak and immediately you're viewed differently. There's also that. This is always a fascinating conversation. If I'm speeding, a cop's not hearing an accent. So, right. Yeah, my kids are mixed race. And, you know, I think about it a lot too, because obviously, as a straight white dude growing up in the Midwest, I did not, and I was blind to my privilege, you know, of course. Eventually, you become conscious of what's happening. And if a cop pulled me over, I just was worried about, a, about getting a speeding ticket and having to tell my right. mom. I wasn't worried about getting shot. And yet here I am raising kids that very well uh, have to be concerned about that. And um, and so it's it's uh, it's a it's just. Yeah. And then, you know, but I also bring it up in part because, you know, I have a dear friend from Senegal who immigrated here to go to Ohio State and has been in country ever since. And he was middle class Senegalese, very well educated, you know, spoke five languages, all of that in came to America and he, I remember him telling me how shocked he was about the level of privilege that he had as a, as a Senegalese man versus America, black men in America and navigating that and learning that and figuring out how to deal with that. Yeah. I'm really sensitive about that subject because I, obviously I don't feel like I should be treated any differently, but we're trying to get the treatment all at one level. So, how do you deal with issues of social justice, bias, racism, discrimination? How do you deal with these themes and topics in your work, if at all? Just because it's bubbled to the surface of every conversation, really. I mean, if you look at the news right now, and I don't know if you have been following the whole Alabama, the chair incident. I feel like you can't help but address it. And I've been so sensitive to the injustice. My way of coping is really to just, it's like therapy. I put it on canvas and it sort of helps me deal. It's almost like my way of healing myself. And then I feel like when I share it, the response is is always positive. So I feel like that's sort of me putting a positive spin on something that's a really hard pill to swallow. So that's how I justify dealing with the messiness of it. Like I never feel like I'm, I'm never trying to promote violence, but yes, I am for challenging the system and just trying to heal, trying to make shit better for everybody. But now, like I think the first, I did a Trayvon Martin, like back that that was like what year was that oh gosh i mean now sadly it it seemed well i mean was it was six years ago was it that long ago i think it may be even Five years ago? longer longer than that but anyway I'm, yeah. i say this to There's say been the, sad, the, the sad point being that there have been so many horrible situations since trayvon that we barely remember when when exactly that happened yeah exactly i've literally done dozens of pieces since you know from George Floyd all the way to, you know, I just did a piece 
on the Alabama situation. So it's like, I think last two, I did a solo show at my home gallery. It was 2012, by the way. It was, I just Googled it. 2012. I was going to guess 2012. Yeah. So, you know, it's like I did a piece, a sort of protest piece, and it's, you know, somebody with a picket sign, and the sign reads, we're just tired. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to ever do another piece like this. And again, the, the only reason why I keep doing it is is because it, it helps me deal. Yeah, right, right, right. It really helps. My art is my own therapy, so it helps me sort of process and heal just like literally while i'm doing it i'm in a zone and there are a million thoughts racing through my head and it really just helps me heal and i hope that in turn it helps others heal well and i'm reminded of the old saying too right a picture is worth a thousand words i mean in terms of being able to create an image right that communicates something so profound as the as what you just described for example that's such a powerful message obviously that you're creating in color and, and with image and shape and form and line and some people might write a book you paint a painting one of the paintings that i saw on your site recently that struck me in this vein was the does my shirt have that much power piece yeah yeah, yeah i saw that i thought wow okay he's saying a lot here <laughs> there's a lot and that can be yeah, we've had some really interesting discussions on that piece. And it really came about, I was in Miami for Art Basel, and I was with a dear friend of mine, and he had on a Lizzo t-shirt. And it's so funny that eight, nine months later, like she's making headlines for something completely different. But, you know, she sort of celebrated size, and it was a thing. And I'm not going to say if I'm a fan of hers either way but you know a friend of mine was wearing a lizzo t-shirt and we were going to meet a friend of mine who's heavyset and i was like are you kidding me you can't you're not wearing that t-shirt to meet my heavyset friend it started a whole discussion he was like why why is why is this not appropriate i was like it just you know and my friend is Mexican. So it was the race thing. If, are you, if, I, I just, let's not make this a thing. Anyway, that really started a whole conversation about, well, does my t-shirt really have that much power? Like, right, right, <laughs> right. And, you know, we started going, well, what if you were wearing this t-shirt? Or what if you were wearing this t-shirt? So if I went to meet your friend that was gay and I had on a this t-shirt what is it right. but what if it was a trans person that was wearing this t-shirt and it just was so fascinating i was like i have to figure out how to put this on canvas because this is not just happening <laughs> right. without me sort of making a public sort of statement and continuing the conversation and that's yes. that's usually what my art is about it's sort of me experiencing stuff and it gets to sort of like live on and the conversation gets continued mm. when I put it on canvas. So that's a really good example of a real life situation that I yes. decided to have conversation about. Yeah. I mean, when I saw the piece, it just spoke to me on multiple levels. And one of the levels was this commentary about virtue signaling and, okay, you wear the t-shirt, but 
what difference are you really making? Is that t-shirt really making a difference? It might be, it might not be, right? Right. (laughs) Exactly. And it speaks to people's sensitivity as well. Yes, yes. There's some sort of powerful statements on there that I clearly don't subscribe to. But what is your response, even just reading those words? Like yes, yes. so much, so much power in it. Well, and by the way, though, I mean, I have to preface, I guess, what I'm about to say by admitting that I fully recognize what I'm about to say may very well be the byproduct of my white privilege in this country. But what I will say is this, the amount of power that we've given words, it feels disproportionate to the actual power those words have. And what I mean by that is back when I was growing up in this country in the 70s and the 80s, you know, we used to say when, you know, and I was a I was an overweight kid. I got teased a lot. I was a real sick kid. I got teased and harassed and it made me who I am, you know, like that builds your perseverance. It gives you thicker skin. But in those days, we sort of all grew up with this phrase under this phrase, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can right, never words can never hurt me. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, and it's that's really interesting. Certainly changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how easily people these days. And again, I don't live day to day being persecuted, but many people right. are. You know, so I recognize right. that. So, but all we can really control, right, is our attitude, is our perception. Absolutely. And I just wonder, are we giving these words too much power over our sense of self? It seems like every week that changes, like what was appropriate last year, you can no longer say. And thank God for having kids, because sometimes I would say something and it's like, Dad, you can't say that. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of prehistoric dinosaur man are you? (laughs) <laughs> don't embarrass me and ever say that again. It's like, what did I say? <laughs> but it really, it really just, um, you know, it, it keeps you appropriate, keeps you current, it keeps you on your toes. That's, I guess that's how we need to be. We need to be sort of a little bit more sensitive to the realities of others. Yes, absolutely. A bit more situational awareness is definitely a good thing. right i'll leave it at that yeah 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 (laughs) Uh, i think uh, yeah i i think we've 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 solved this particular conversation for the time being i tell you what miles you you my friend are just such a gift and you know i can't believe i mean we've we've already been talking for almost an hour (laughs) really flew by really flew by uh that's amazing I, know. I, I hope, I hope we covered mind. all that you wanted to cover. I well, like well, I mean, scratching you know, the surface. I, I love, well, that's see, but this is why I love these. That's why I have the best job in the world, right? Because I get to sit down with incredible humans like you and just see what happens, like the magic, you know, in the conversation and, and really the space is, I try to create the space to humanize these magical, mystical creatures called artists and honor and celebrate the magic that artists do make. We thank you for that. We are very much appreciated. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me on. This was, it was a delightful conversation. Well, I'm so glad you came on, Miles. Thank you so much. Before we go, give us a couple quick things to keep in mind. Obviously, I want you to tell people where to find you on, on social, what have you, but but what's coming up for you? What should people know? Oh, my God. I'm excited about 
so much. I am, well, I've just spent the summer sort of like in the lab, just creating a beautiful body of work that I can't wait to share. So I'm sort of in the process of figuring out which pieces go to what opportunities. But next is I'm doing a collaboration with Rock Against Racism. Kickoff event in Louisville in September, September 14th at the Bourbon and Beyond concert series. Super excited about that. That's just a tease. A lot of really exciting details being figured out, but it's going to be a really exciting time. And then a couple other sort of group shows in the fall. My Ivory Coast galleries showing me in the Ivory Coast. And then I think I end the year at Basel in Miami, which is like art Christmas for me. Yes, And then in 2024, I, I do, I think I'm in four different art fairs through my London gallery. And I have a couple solo shows. I believe I have another solo show at my local gallery, Von Lintel Gallery. And then I'm in the process of planning for and curating my first museum solo show, which is really a dream come true so more details on that i don't have dates etched in stone just yet we're sort of at the beginning stages but i've actually been offered two solar museum shows so yeah still working on some amazing tech driven experiences as well right i've been collaborating with sutu who's just amazing doing some vr ar really interesting stuff Collaborating on music with Etienne Charles. He's a, a Trinidadian jazz musician who I've loved for like over a decade and finally have the opportunity to collaborate with him on some tracks. So excited about that. What else? Clothing, just creating yeah. and just releasing it and hoping that people love it. I have no doubt people are going to love it. And yeah, I just love the fact that. You are this multidimensional, multidisciplinary artist who just can't help but tell amazing stories. And Miles, thank you for coming on and sharing your amazing story with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.